huge savings on new and previously leased furnishings. That's right, huge savings. At Court Furniture Clearance Center, choose from our wide variety of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. You'll find sofas from $199.99 and more. Everything in our 9,000 square foot showroom is Court certified, guaranteed, and in stock. Ready for delivery or to take home today. Visit our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy uh, one and a week slash Happy. Middle Tennessee week. It's both. It's a lot of weeks. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, it's football season, so there's, there's numerous storylines to be had. There are. It's a uh, Scott Schaefer reunion week. Uh, Sariki Diabate is also coming back. It's, an, it's a smaller part of. I think a lot of people have focused on the Schaefer headline, but I, I know I mentioned in the uh, the TV schedule and like history article today. Um, Sariki's actually been on campus every year since 2011 when he arrived, um, because after he graduated, he worked as a grad assistant at SU, um, then went to Colgate. Was he? Uh, facing Syracuse last year at the Dome, and then this year he's at Middle Tennessee, will face us again. So yeah, he's uh, he's racked up quite the string of, of seasons working and or playing um, at Syracuse, oddly. I think I actually totally missed that he was at uh, MTSU, so that's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, Schaefer, you know, always takes care of his guys. And uh, not surprising that, you know, Diabate, who... I mean, when I talked to him last year before the Colgate game... Definitely seemed like somebody who had had his head on straight for, for how long it could potentially take him to get to head, a head coaching job, but it's something that he was passionate about. It was something that um, he did seem like he, he was, you know, happy to learn as much as possible at. I mean, he's had some cool opportunities, um, obviously, like the ones mentioned. He worked with the Bills for a little bit while Marone was there. Um, he was at Notre Dame uh, this past spring. Uh, just doing, I believe, it was like film assistant and some other things on the defensive end. So he's gotten, again, like a lot of cool opportunities. And he's someone who, you know, now that he's at the linebacker spot, um, he was coaching the secondary um, at Colgate. Now he'll be coaching the linebackers at Middle Tennessee. Uh, I think that might be a better fit for him. And to be honest, it, it provides probably a much bigger advantage for uh, Middle Tennessee players right off the bat because they're not just you know talking to Schaefer, you know someone who coaches uh, that defense and what the linebackers are supposed to do, but they're actually talking to a, a recent, you know, former linebacker who knows exactly what you need to do in that defensive scheme. Yeah, I mean, he always seemed like a guy who, you know, he's a cerebral player. He had uh, an interesting path to SU in the beginning, in the first place, and he always seemed like a coach's favorite. So that's a, that's a really good way to kind of date yourself into this pipeline of, of working your way up the coaching ranks, which is tough. Um, I, I, you know, I think it's great that he's uh, getting his shot and getting, you know, making his rounds and building all those connections. We've also seen like Mackie McPherson doing similar things in the last couple of years. So good to have more SU guys in the, in the ranks and you never know when they're going to pop uh, back up uh, in central New York. hundred um, percent. So Dan, why don't we talk a little bit about last week's game before we jump into uh, this week's game. Uh, I thought that, you know, Corey and Julian did a great job over the weekend. For those who haven't checked out that episode, we'll have a link um, within the post on Noons. Um, so be sure to listen to that episode as well if you missed it uh, this past Saturday. Uh, they did a great job, obviously. Julian was in the press box during the game, 
and, uh, and had some really great insights about what the defense was doing and even you know some of the reads that Eric Dungy was making. Overall, a cool episode, uh, a more succinct episode than, than what you usually get from us midweek. Um, but listen to both. They're, they're both valuable in their own right, I think. Um, there are two different episode formats. But um, Dan, what, what was most impressive to you about, about what was a pretty one-sided victory for, uh, for Syracuse? Um, it, it was interesting. Like, uh, at first watching the game live, uh, it was hard not to just be very happy about, you know, a, a pretty dominant win. Um, it's what you want against an FBS team or FCS team rather. And it's not something we've always had, even though we've, we've managed to avoid the FCS upset, uh, kind of miraculously a couple times. We, we, we haven't always had like these easy cruising performances, even, even like, uh, the game against, uh, we had a game against Maine, I think where, you know, the score wasn't terrible, but there were like some iffy moments, we've had injuries and, and, you know, like cheap shots from the other team. So this one was pretty, aside from the Cordy injury, which if you watch college football this weekend, like we'll probably sign for that because it doesn't sound like it'll be a full season thing compared to some of the other big injuries. Um, I think I, I was very impressed with just how, even compared to last year, like how uh, much more uh, ready the offense seemed. Like it, it was very obvious that this is an offense that we've been running for a full year now versus uh, even last year in the Colgate game, like they put up 33 points, but, um, you know, things seemed, still seemed a little hectic running at that pace, and you could tell the team wasn't quite ready, you know, quite prepared to play at the Dino Baber style. Uh, this weekend, uh, we ran, what, 96 plays, and we very rarely looked like we were out of sync or, or confused or... Only one offsides um, call. Yeah, that was a huge difference. Um, it just seemed it seemed like a team that was a year into its scheme versus uh, a team that was just learning it. And we've talked about how how important that is to this Babers uh, system, and, and the progression here is is you know having a set scheme that is not going to change radically from year to year. It'll change a little bit based on personnel, um, but you have an identity, you have a, a cogent uh, idea of what you want to do on offense every week. And I thought that showed. And obviously, putting up 50 points in Central Connecticut, it's not like you know you're not impressing anyone by doing that. But um, what were you I supposed mean, to do? You did what you're supposed to do. And honestly, Syracuse probably could have drop 70 if they wanted there was no real reason to do that um they they had dungy out by the mid third quarter i was a little nervous about some of the the runs and <laughs> the flips and whatnot i know they tried to explain them away afterwards which is you know is what it is yeah, that's what you're gonna do um but overall i think you know we, we kind of laid out some things we wanted to see heading into the game and i think we checked most of those boxes um especially the passing game for sure and then the defense like i was i was trying to look it up i was trying to compare to last year's colgate game and actually the numbers are very similar um, I think Colgate was probably a slightly better team than the central team is. I don't know how they finished up last year. I think they went um, six and five last year, but they were like a, they were a fringe top 25 team going into the season. Right. And we held them to seven points as well. And uh, around the same yardage total. Um, I will say, you know, we probably would have had the shutout if not for a really, really gorgeous touchdown throw. <laughs> like uh, I know Julian talked about how uh, the safety, the safety up top was a little late coming over. Um, overall, honestly, like nice that ball. was a gorgeous throw. It was a great ball. <laughs> so, that was the, the, one of the two, my two favorite passes of the day. That one and then the, uh, the pass, Culpepper. the Culpepper to Butler pass was just. Uh, really great. Like, unbelievable throw. Yeah, like a perfect, perfect throw. Like, anyone that was sitting around, like, still doubting him as a, as a college quarterback. Like, I mean, uh, Zach Mahoney's great. He's, he's, he's a, you know, cult hero. But Mahoney's never making that throw. Mahoney has very different strengths. Mahoney's a great leader. Um, he's athletic. He's, like, sneaky, like, weirdly athletic and finds holes in defenses as a runner. Also he's knows how to tough. run smarter. 
Yeah, I think he's arguably like a more cerebral. He's not as athletic as Dungey for sure. He's not as fast, but he just like he he maneuvers space better. I think. Yes. Um, where Dungey is more of like a you know take what the de- like you know see the defense has a has an opening and and get seven yards because he he's fast. He's a fast quarterback. Um, Culpepper, like if that again. He is probably our de facto fourth quarterback, considering Devito's, you know, still there lurking. If that's your fourth quarterback, and I know it was an FCS, you know, a bad FCS defense, if that's your fourth quarterback making his first performance, like that's pretty good. You'll yeah. take that. And most of the, I mean, incompletions. I think we only, I think we ended up with what it was. Dungey had eight. I think there was maybe like six or seven from Mahoney, but like at least half of them were drops. Yeah, we were thirty-seven for fifty-two. Uh, as a whole for 431. So that's, you know, an 8.3 average. Culpepper was at 6.4 per attempt, which is, you know, that's not great. But for your, again, first outing, playing with second stringers, a lot of drops, um, that's not bad. Dungey was excellent, 28 for 36. And even, like, there were a couple passes that I thought Dungey could have thrown better. Like, it was not a perfect performance for him, and yet his stats were fantastic. Um, yeah, he was brutally 9.1 efficient. per attempt. Yeah, the first 13, uh, you know, he, he had, uh, who had, uh, I think Devin Butler had a couple bad drops. Um, well, they're at a couple of bad nice. drops. Ishmael got stripped once. Irv. Irv this probably. This was a really nice play. Yeah, that was a like really that, nice dude, play. Had a great play on the ball. And then that Irv drop deep. Yes. Irv should have. Irv needs to. Like, that's one of the things where Irv. Irv's hands have come a long way since, like, But he's years never so been a deep guy. He's never been a deep guy, and he's still, like, he's still learning the position. Like, he was a very, he was a pure running back when he got here. He's done a lot better. Like, the catch he made along the sideline where you, like, kind of fell out of bounds oh, yeah. for, I think, like, a 14, 15-yard gain was gorgeous. He's still, you know, working his way there, and his hands uh, were, were pretty bad two years ago. Now they're, like, you know, I'd say they're probably average. Um, he obviously does great things with the ball, though, and, and he's proven to be reliable pass catcher, too. So um, I'm pretty I'm pretty excited about what we got out of both quarterbacks. Um, I think the receivers look pretty good. Uh, I think the running game, not so much. Ugh. Well, yeah, we're, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, first, Ishmael, I'll mention one other thing, and I said this in the Office of Play Calling Breakdown uh, Article 2. Um, Ishmael had that – he had a couple different times he did this. Um, a, the fact that Central was not guarding him on, on that screen. Um, the guy just had, you know, five yards, just halo um, in the flat every time. But uh, the fact that even in traffic he was doing similar things to what we saw from Amba Atawa last year – uh, of using his kind of control and balance and speed uh, to quickly navigate uh, small spaces. Um, I, I know that you and I and a lot of other people kind of focused on what Ishmael was able to do, um, you know, with the deep ball and, and substituting with Ahmed Atabo there. Um, but what I think we didn't realize he'd be able to do, and just like at Atabo, I didn't think we realized either, uh, was operating in that, that small space, uh, which could really come in handy. Uh, as, you know, I mean, if teams start guarding him over the top or, or, or focusing him in on him and Butler and maybe Custis, like having him being able to divert quick, you know, and grab what would look like pretty easy five and six yard chunks at the very least. Um, something to me that that's a big highlight, but the run game. Um, Dan, I think it's just worth rehashing everything people have been saying in the comments. Um, even against second stringers and all, like Marquenzie Pierre definitely looked like a better running back um yeah he definitely seemed to like there's there's just a natural look to running back sometimes and you kind of know who has it and who doesn't and i don't want to like bury just uh moniel or uh dante strickland uh moniel especially i think um we've talked about in the comments a little bit like i just don't know that he has the size to run behind this offensive line i think with a a better situated offensive line he might have a shot 
Um, but it wouldn't surprise me to see him trying to move more towards the outside or we can get the ball in his hands kind of like we did with Irv a couple of years ago. Um, obviously, that's not any information I have. It just seems like a thing that could happen. Um, Pierre definitely seemed to have the most natural uh, running um, just instinct of yeah, everyone vision. that played. Yeah, just good vision. He found the holes. And looking, like, obviously the offensive line is a major issue. It's the offense's one huge issue because I'm really bullish on the passing game overall. Um, unless there were some times where Strickland just missed holes, I think. Um, and so it's not all on them. Uh, the problem is it doesn't really matter why it's not going well when you can only average 3.8 yards as a team against Central Connecticut and uh, your leading rusher is Eric Tungy. Uh That does not bode well when we have uh, front sevens like NC State and Clemson uh, and Florida State coming up because um, Central does not quite have that level of talent. Uh, and as, you know, as much as we can, you know, say, oh, we'll just throw the ball around, I, I think we will be able to do that in most teams. Um, we're not going to beat those top caliber teams unless we get a, a at least a passable running game. And 3.8 yards of carry isn't, isn't going to cut it. I think we need to get over four. We need to have running backs doing it, not just Dungy escaping the pocket and putting himself uh, in position to get crushed. Um, so that continues to be a, a thing. I would love to see Pierre more. Um, and hopefully, uh, you know, we have a couple more, quote, tune-up, unquote, games here. So hopefully we can maybe even work him in with the ones and, and see if we, you know, provide some lightning in the bottle there. Yeah, I, I would love to see more of Pierre now versus later kind of thrown into the Wolves. Um, Middle Tennessee doesn't really have the, the front forward to – that should be able to, to stop the run, although they did hold Vandy to less than 100 yards uh, rushing last week. I think that a lot of that was also because Vandy was able to beat them over the top so easily, so they didn't need to throw, uh, run as much, excuse me. But um, I think between Middle Tennessee and then Central Michigan, like we should be giving Pierre some burn. And, and, and it's not even to knock, you know, again, Neil's going to get the ball regardless. I think Strickland. If he gets relegated to second string running back, I think we'll find ways to work him in um, into the screen game, whatever. Um, point is, like, why not get P- like? Hopefully, we, we can we can put Middle Tennessee and Central Michigan away in, in in a decent amount of time, or at least make those games out of reach, so that if you're gonna give Pierre more carries and you're gonna really see what he can do, um, you're not doing it at the risk of, of, of harming your chances of winning the game. And I think, again, that, that's not to say Pierre could lose us a game, but it's just to say that if we wanted to give a true freshman a little more burn, um, having having those opportunities when the game isn't in, in the balance um, could be super helpful for us. Said I, I think his vision's great. I, I think that you, you saw him I, you know, find holes. I think I mentioned this in the comments. Like The one problem I, I have with our running game over the last few years is just it's a lot of straight-ahead running. There, there's no, there's not much in terms of divergence. Doesn't mean that you need to cut back um, a, a ton and and you know juke move your way from one side of the field to the other before you finally pass the line of scrimmage. But like some of our better runners, um, you know whether that's you know an Antoine Bailey or uh, Prince Tyson Gully, you know Jerome Smith, guys like that. Like even if they started straight forward, they understood what the next cut was and the next move was and. Strickland just seems like it's a straightforward run, and then whatever happens, happens. And I, I don't know where the breakdown there is, but um, Pierre does seem like he can do a little bit more. And I, I like like you, I, I do hope that we can see um, see him a little bit more, and maybe see if we can find ways to get this this run game more effective. I mean, there's so little tape on him right now that um, 
he could really do some damage, uh, you know, with the ones in these next couple weeks. I will say, uh, considering that Strickland was at, you know, 3.2 yards of carry and then Moniel and Tyron Perkins were just over two each, uh, there's not that much room above the ultimate floor <laughs> of where Pierre could go. So unless he's losing like five yards of carry uh, as the as an RB1, I, I don't know how what the, like if there's that much of a risk to playing him. <laughs> so, this is uh, yeah, true. The, the risk is in pass protection, honestly, <laughs> is, is what it is. The risk is, in, is if he can't protect uh, Dungy as, uh, as running back in pass protection. Um, well, not just I, that. I think it's also the calling out because you didn't see Pierre have to call out defenses, and I think Strickland Strickland sits where he does on that depth chart. I think in part because he he outplayed Morris and Fredericks in particular on that front. I, I think that he is just an, an experienced and veteran player who who just has as a better read on defenses and a better read on on, on one of the the atypical roles of a running back in a Babers system. Um, that I don't think anyone else on the roster does, and maybe that's why we're still going to see him a, a sizable amount. But but if Pierre can get that, um, you know, in the next few weeks, or at least get into a better position there in the next few weeks, I think that's where we start to see him maybe move up the depth chart. Yep, and that's obviously not nothing. You see that in the NFL all the time, like the the rookie running backs that have the trouble that have trouble getting onto the field in the NFL are the guys who can't pass protect and the guys who struggle with identifying defenses. And that's why, like, a guy like Ezekiel Elliott, who, you know, who knows what his role is going to be in the next seven weeks here, but he was taken so high when running backs were kind of falling in the draft because not only is he a great rusher, he is was probably the best blocking running back uh, in college football two years ago, and yes. he was a great pass catcher as well. Um, also, uh, interesting, you brought up, like, the whole not, you know, the lack of creativity in the running game that we've had. Um, it's actually kind of interesting, I think, two or three of the best running plays, like design runs that we had, were uh, those reverses to Nike and Johnson. Oh, those were great. And and if we're going to do things like that, like I think one of the biggest criticisms from a lot of people last year when they saw the running game stall was that why are we only running the same thing? I think we saw some off-tackle runs, um, not just by Dungy, but in general um, this past week. And I think we saw, you know, those two reverses, both of which were, were incredibly effective, yes, against you know, a, a kind of beaten down and, uh, and tired Central Connecticut team later in the game. But nonetheless, like, those plays didn't really have much of a tell at the beginning, um, which, which is, I think, a big difference from some of the, some of the less straightforward play calls we saw from, from Babers last year is, I think, because everyone's more comfortable, uh, plays like that work. And, and if Johnson's only role is that and potentially punt and kick returns, like, I think he could be invaluable and potentially like the Brizzly esteem replacement that we were kind of hoping for from somebody on the roster. Yeah. I'm trying to, I think they were actually counted as passes, even though I thought they were pretty clearly runs. Um, yeah. runs. Uh, I'm looking at the stats. They only credited him with one. He definitely touched it more than once. Right. Uh, you know what? That stat sheet sucks. Um, I've mentioned this before. Like ESPN and Syracuse both have one catch for 13 yards. Well, I think that oh. the stats for ESPN come from Syracuse, so if that's okay. any indication. Um, that's the big problem. Oh, just this is a sidebar. Um, <laughs> one of my biggest problems is that um, if ESPN and, and the school are going to, you know, say that they have the data available, like, actually have the right data. I mean, the last drive, and I know that this is nitpicking, but since I rewatch the games and make sure that that I'm capturing the right information, um, the last drive is wrong. The entire the entire play-by-play of the last drive is wrong. Like, like the I mean, the game clock is always wrong, for one. Um, but 
but the actual clock on, on this, the actual clock is wrong. The, um, the yardage and down and distance is wrong. They missed two entire plays. Like there, there's just, there's just a lack of caring. And, and I don't, I'm, I'm not blaming anybody specific. I'm just saying in general, some, whoever's, whoever's handling this, just do a better job of it because people, people like myself who are, you know, rewatching the game to talk about the team, like, it would help if we had accurate information. I didn't need to rewind a goddamn awful watch ESPN feed numerous times on my computer, like second guessing. It'd be one thing if it was on my DVR and I could at least like quick pinpoint a spot. But when I'm scrolling a three hour stream to try to then go back and figure out what plays were left out of the box score, like that's, that's bullshit. That's good to know since I, uh, I wrote an article comparing, uh, Felipe Franks and Malik Zaire earlier, and I'm now I have no idea if the stats I can remember <laughs> right because I use ESPN. It's I Florida, so it's probably right. They're, they're probably right because I assume the Florida Michigan stats are slightly more, uh, you know, discriminated. Uh, but yeah, um, the ESPN I'm, I just went through, and yeah, they like I vividly remember at least two of those reverses for Johnson. So, um, well, they yeah. also had uh, they also list Tyler Gilfus as Davon Ellison. I also like that they have Devin C. Butler listed as Devin C. Christopher Butler. <laughs> like in case, in case you're really interested as to what the C is, um, I don't know the other Devin Butler got the full. No, he just says Devin, Devin M. The the mystery remains. Mm. Um, the other thing, one of the other wrinkles I saw, which I don't remember if we pulled out last year. Uh, you probably have a better memory of it since you do the the play calling breakdowns. Did we use any pure speed option last year? Because we did it in Central like one or two times. Uh, I think we did it like very sparingly. Another thing I would bring up, I know we said we weren't going to talk about last week a ton, but here we are. Um, did it seem like Culpepper was running Mahoney's plays to you? I didn't think it at the time. But I saw you tweet it or mention it somewhere in the comments of the Slack, and it wouldn't shock me because, I, I mean, it We're would make sense that we, we really option. have like, yeah. That, that wouldn't shock me. Yeah, like it just like because I, I was sitting there going like, wait a second, like Culpepper's not a running quarterback. Why is he optioning? That uh, the one one big problem I had, and I mentioned this on in the article too. Um, that stupid Stritzinger screen. That wasn't good. That was that was so stupid, and like I just think that late like. I'm not going to put it on the coaching staff necessarily because they're, they're football players. They should be able to play. But at the same time, like having two true freshmen, like trying to execute a play like that, just like was asking for a, a, a disaster. And, and it really, it could have ended very poorly. And I also, I really also don't understand why Stritzinger's shirt was burned, but whatever. Yeah. I mean, I, I assume maybe he was going to play specials or something like nah. You know, we're not in a super great position to redshirt everyone we want based on numbers. Um, so I assume everyone who burned is, is not going to, like, have the uh, Antoine Bailey uh, treatment where he plays, like, a couple times and then, you know, no one cares about anything else. Um, but uh, actually, Bailey ended up having, like, two huge games, but he, he didn't burn his redshirt until, like, the seventh game of the season or something <laughs> stupid. Um, he did help us win that Notre Dame game, though, so I guess yeah. that was maybe, maybe worth it. Yeah, it was worth it. That was a great game. Um <laughs> I've decided it was absolutely worth it now that I remember how happy I was as a freshman. Um, yeah, no, overall, like, the, uh, I, th- I kind of do believe that theory because it would make sense that we have two different packages for Dungy slash whomever and then Mahoney because their skill sets are so different. 
And I kind of get why you would w- wouldn't want to have Culpepper running like the full bore offense uh, because he and Dungey aren't all that similar either. Uh, so maybe Mahoney's is probably more stripped down. So maybe that that is what was going on there. I, I buy that. Um, I would have to go, like rewatch it and compare, but I also don't really want to do that. So <laughs> um, I, don't, I really, really recommend that on Watch ESPN. It would make sense that we have a Dungey offense and then a Mahoney package. Um, for when he, for if when he has to come in, because they are such like they're just very very different players. Right. All right. That's up last week. Um, you know what? Since we're like nearing halftime and all that, why don't we talk a little basketball and then we will switch over to the Middle Tennessee preview portion of things. Um, first up, Dan. This might actually end up coming out about the same time. ACC. I haven't seen them acknowledge this, but I know John Rothstein. Um, said that the ACC was going to announce the men's basketball schedule um, on Thursday. Uh, I wrote an article just about some things I'd like to see from that. Uh, None of them were like, you know, super big, like nitpicks. It was more just, hey, would love to not face the same teams twice in the last five games and, you know, would love to not have really tough, like, back-to-backs on short rest. Um, Anything you're hoping for from this schedule? Um, it's tough for basketball because it's like, it's not as, uh, cut and dry a thing as football where we kind of have, know exactly what, what we want as, you know, our wing of the Syracuse fan base and what we think is best. Right. Um, basketball is a little more wide ranging and I would like to see us play some premier games and I would like to see us challenge ourselves a bit. Also, cause like in football, like you have to sit you're going to the bowl. We have no real like grand plans of, of, you know, getting into the orange bowl or something in a surprise season. Uh, versus basketball, where we, you know, if we've been in the position we are the last couple of years, like you do need to challenge yourself a little bit to impress the committee. So um, I don't have any like great takeaways. I, I like having the the games against UConn because that's how apparently all of a sudden the thing that we're going to do all the time. But only um, in preseason tournaments. Only in preseason. Yeah, that's fine. I mean, <laughs> I would like to, you know, a home and home with them too. Um, preferably Gamble, not the Etzel Center, because that place sucks. Um, Let's just play them twice a year, just home and home thing every year. That's fine. Has anyone, anyone, has anyone ever done that? I think that's happened a couple times for teams that happen to be placed in the same preseason tournament after they had already scheduled. I ah, feel yeah. like that happened in the last couple of years with two teams. Um, but I don't think it's been like a thing where two teams have like gone out of their way to schedule it. I mean, it'd be but fun to do that. I would totally do that. I'd be so fine with that. That said, like, do we want to get, I feel like we get them too much legitimacy. I, I don't know. I, I mean, UConn, they, they do have like a bunch of national championships, so... I'm not too worried about that. Um, as much as I do like, you know, them being buried, uh, as I, I also like the rivalry. So I'm, I'm kind of split on that. I, I, I like UConn being stuck in a mid-major. Um, that makes me, that tickles me every time. But I do think you, it's stupid to not acknowledge that they have been a very, very good program. Um, and playing them and hopefully beating them again, uh, I think feels better than just not playing them at all. Um, so oh, I, I want to play I would... them. I just don't want to play. Them. I just feel like if we play them twice, my only drawback is that if we lost two games, or if this the stage, that would suck. Yeah. yeah, or if the stage that we afforded them, like, because to be real, like, you know, the, the NCAA tournament payouts are going to start drying up because if, for those who don't know how the win shares work, like, you get those shares based on what happened over a five-year stretch in the tournament. Like what UConn did a few years ago, that's going to start vanishing. Louisville's shares vanishing now. After they won the, the, the championship and their one and only season in the uh, the American Athletic Conference, like so, well, the American has been a cut above everyone else in terms of non you know Power Five conferences and, and NCAA tournament revenue and postseason revenue overall. Like 
that dynamic is going to change quite a bit in the next two years when, again, those, those payouts are not what they, what they were. That's fair. And I'm, I'm usually for uh, just pure pettiness like that, oh, yeah. especially with regard to UConn. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there, are, there, are good, there are multiple ways where you can legitimately look at the, at the future of the rivalry and come out like in a decent spot. Too, too true. Um, so, yeah, I guess that brings us uh, conveniently to the uh, 2K Sports Classic news. Uh, we are facing, well, we're probably going to face UConn. I don't know why we wouldn't. Uh, They're definitely going to try to set yeah. it up to, for us to face UConn. And hopefully not powerhouse Iowa. <laughs> that was, I mentioned this in the article. I'm mad that nobody in the comments picked up on this. That uh, Rothstein referred to, well, first, you know, featured the Syracuse-UConn rivalry, as you should. Um, and then proceeded to to give due credit to Oregon and Iowa for being, um, you know, annual powerhouses, <laughs> to which, you know, Dan and I had a laugh on Slack and made sure I put it in the article. Like, I was made two Final Fours since 1980, no, sorry, two Sweet Sixteen since 1988, and none since 1999. Um, yes. I, I was made one Sweet Sixteen in my lifetime. Yeah. I am... I am rapidly aging and, and die and approaching death at this point. <laughs> I am an old person at 26, almost 27. I always made the Sweet 16 one time since I was brought into this terrible earth. Twice for me, if only because I... Uh... <laughs> well, you're, you're, just, you're just ancient, John. <laughs> <laughs> it's only, only by a couple months. Because... We should now start. We should start now referring to people's ages by how many Iowa Sweet 16s they've been alive for. I'm, uh, I'm Iowa 2. And uh, I, I, one day I might be Iowa 3, or I might just die at Iowa 2. We're going <laughs> to... Because no one knows when the next Iowa Sweet 16 will come. Um, <laughs> it's impossible to tell. The thing is, they were actually a perennial like, Sweet 16 team in the 80s. Yeah, they made a bunch like right before. That 88 was like the, uh, yeah, like... the end of like a stretch of like four or five. Yeah, the end of the run. They, uh... it's, yeah. it's like winter in Westeros. Like, <laughs> there, there are different time periods for when winter comes, how long it may last. There it is. Um, <laughs> Obligatory. It just uh, Iowa being called a powerhouse is just so funny. It was just, it was just so dumb. Like, and yeah, to, to circle back quickly, yeah, I'm only, I'm only Iowa two by about two and a half months because I was born January of '88. So it's not this big. So it's not as if there, there's a really long period of time, or that I would even be able to remember it. But anyway, um, I also, also I, I'd like to remind people that John Rothstein's the person who said that Jeremy Grant was like seven foot two one time. So. Yeah, I get it. <laughs> his, his sources are great. His, his his harnessing of facts, not always. Um, He's very good at printing, at getting emails up quickly. Yes, that is true. He's just very good at it. He always <laughs> very, very often the first person to repose an email he gets. This is completely true. Um, I also like threw some mild shade at Oregon, um, if only just to point out like the absurdity of the just thing in general. Like, Although I and I, I couched this in the article, I did say like Oregon. Oregon is a national powerhouse only in the sense that they they they've recently risen to a level that they haven't been. And I don't think that makes you a national powerhouse, but I do think that makes you a program a rising a rising and successful program on a national scale. And I know that sounds like me kind of like mincing words just to create this like you know, nonsensical designation, but I think that that's a better way to say it when you've made five straight tournaments, but you missed like the four before that. 
and you've won a couple Pac-12s and you've made one Final Four that you did not even advance the championship game in. Yeah, like, at least Oregon's done some things very recently. Like, I wouldn't call them a powerhouse either, but I acknowledge that whenever you do any of these arguments, you're just, you're, you're arguing semantics and it's stupid. It's just a dumb thing that we do in every sport every year in every possible way. But if you want to call Oregon a powerhouse to made the Final Four last year, like, I'm not going to get that mad at you. Iowa. I was just a much different level. Yeah. Liar. <laughs> How dare you sully the meaning of the term powerhouse? By, by that definition, then uh, I think Belmont's a powerhouse. There's, there's several other programs who, who, who reach the powerhouse echelon. What is Syracuse then? A, a superpower? Uh, or, or they're a non-power because they haven't made three straight NCAA tournaments. And they've made more than more than <laughs> however many Iowa's made. Maybe, maybe Sweet 16s are actually a, a mark against you. <laughs> but Final Fours recently are good. It's a weird algebra that we're entering here. In Rothstein land. Yeah, I don't know math, so we'll, uh... Yeah, I, I, we, I apologize to everyone. I'm sure you were all told there would be no math. <laughs> all right. Um, Dan, what have you been drinking before we, uh, we get any further down that rabbit hole? Um, unlike last week, I was kept it fairly simple uh, for Labor Day weekend. I did have my first uh, pumpkin beer experience of the uh, year. I did wait till September, but uh, on Monday... Uh, we I had most of a sit back of post road pumpkin ale by Brooklyn, which is one of the better pumpkins uh, that we get around here. Uh, and then the other only other notable thing, which is not that notable because I have it all the time, uh, Dale's Pale Ale, which uh, two dollars of every pounder of that at our local home bar was going to Harvey Relief. So I I did my 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 due diligence as an American to help that cause. I have probably too many. I think in this case, fine with me. Yeah, I don't really feel bad about it. <laughs> Uh, for me, after the Syracuse win, I had a uh, brewery to row, uh, Fruct Lemon and Cherry. It's their uh, Berliner Weiss series where they have different fruit of Berliner Weisses. That one was one of the more sour, uh, but still enjoyable ones. Um, Saturday, after I watched the, you know, more, well, here, morning and, and early afternoon games, headed out to the bars for, uh, for the night games, um, had a Racer 5, had some Stone Ripper Pale Ale, um, and grabbed a four-pack of um, Modern Times, uh, Critical Band, uh, New England IPA. Had some Grape Ape IPA from Smog City. And yeah, that was it. I, uh, I kept it fairly, not light necessarily, but didn't, didn't get too carried away. I felt uh, I was trying to, to save my liver from impending doom in, a, in Louisiana in a couple weeks. Yeah, I actually lied. I, I forgot my friend brought down uh, a couple of growlers from his, he works at Wolf Hollow Brewing up in the Schenectady area if ah. up there. Um, and I've mentioned them before. Um, I'd feel bad if I didn't bring up the beers that he brought down from almost three hours away. Uh, we had uh, the, the year one black lager, which is like not my thing at all. It's a very, very dark, uh, a lot of like coffee, some chocolatey notes, but quite good, honestly. And I, I don't drink those kind of, I don't drink like the super darks. Uh, I love black often. lagers. Oddly. Yeah. You, you probably really like this one. Um, I don't know if they can it or anything. I think they might just be on tap. Uh, and then I also had their their blonde ale, which is called they actually call it a brunette, and it actually like it, it's definitely closer. It almost drinks more like a pale ale. Um, it's real. That one's really delicious. Uh, and I I don't mind blondes, but those are again not not one of my go tos. Uh, but they're I think it's just called the brunette blonde ale. Um, really delicious, really refreshing. Um, definitely, I, I think it drinks more like an American pale ale. Uh, so really like that one. So if you're in the Cincinnati area, go go hit them up. 
Shout out to them. Um, all right. So Middle Tennessee. Um, everyone's focusing on Scott Schaefer. Uh, Dan, what parts of Scott Schaefer's defense could you potentially be concerned about facing on uh, on Saturday? Um, I I mean we we we're all pretty well accustomed to what Schaefer does on defense. He's going to dial up the pressure pretty relentlessly. And while I'm not as concerned about our pass blocking as I am our run blocking. Um, offensive line in general is uh, kind of an issue, and I think he's going to bring a lot of guys. Yeah, I, I think, and I don't really, I don't have their roster. Well, might have their roster up. Um, looking at, you know, some of their defensive linemen. I mean, even their, well, you can get to the offensive line, but looking at defensive linemen, none of these guys are like super big. I mean, that's kind of a Schaefer hallmark. I think he kind of inherited like the types of guys that he would actually, you know, want right off the bat. And that's a product of, you know, having like a, a group of five school and a non-major market, like, and in a non, you know, recruiting hotbed necessarily. Um, that said, like, there's a lot of Tennessee kids, a lot of Florida kids uh, and a lot of uh, Georgia kids um, on this middle Tennessee state team. I think he's got that, got the right amount of speed. I know a couple of people in the comments were, were sharing some notes from what they watched during the, uh, the Vandy game last week, I didn't tune into that, um, but some other folks did and said they saw a lot of the same things that they saw from Syracuse, both good and bad. Um, said missed tackles was uh, was something that they saw a lot of. I'm not going to pin that on Schaefer just yet. Um, if, if we get two years into him being D.C. over there and, and that's still happening, then maybe. Um, I know somebody else in the comments was saying, too, like, this offense should be tailored to beat them because we can just screen them to death based on what we remember from uh, from our defense just getting screened to death. Um, I'm really, really hoping that's the case because I feel like it would be some just desserts. And, and, and more than that, would just be a satisfying experience for us as fans to finally not be on the bad end of that. Yeah, I mean, that was a constant issue with, like, obviously any kind of defense you feel, unless it's like 2011 LSU or any year Alabama, like, there are going to be counterpunches that will work more often than not. And what I do love about Tina Babers is he doesn't have that, like, video game player conscience where you have the one play in, like, NCAA 14 that works almost every time, but you feel bad running it over and over. <laughs> Dino doesn't have that built into his life. Like, he just does not care. He will run the same play as many times as uh, he thinks it'll work. See you last um, week. Yes. No, like, they, they ran that one Steve Ishmael play so often. Um, so yeah, if they're going to leave like Irv open on a screen or, or Ishmael open in the flat, uh, and going to give up 13 yards every time, we will run that play 25 times. So, um, that is going to be a concern, uh, for middle Tennessee. Um, I think it's just, you know, when you have an over aggressive defense, you're going to be susceptible to, um, big plays over the top and also, uh, fakes and streams that, you know, your guys are biting on. So We'll see. Uh, obviously, it was not a great performance for them against Vanderbilt, and obviously, you don't want to pin that all on Schaefer. It's his first first game as DC there, and he's inheriting talent from. I, I don't. I, I'm assuming a system that wasn't necessarily the same. Um, and but you know, Vandy handled them pretty pretty well. And while I think Vandy might be better this year, he I'm through for not, almost 300 yards. Yeah, and I think Shermer's a pretty good quarterback, but he's I not that good. Over him. Yeah, Shermer had Shermer torched them. Um, 20 for 28 for 296 and three touchdowns. Like that's a really good game. And while I think he might be like a pretty solid college quarterback, maybe he showed some flashes last year. 
I think Dungy's a much better player. Um, and he's so more dynamic on, I think, throwing the ball and running the ball. And that's something that, like, that Vandy game is not going to prep you for. Yeah. I think the one thing that, that would give me cause for concern is that Vandy is a much better running situation than Syracuse does. Ralph yes. Webb is probably one of the better running backs in the SEC, and he did nothing against uh, Middle Tennessee. He sort of touched down, but he was held at two yards of Terry. Um, there's a good chance that they just sold out against the run. I didn't watch the game, and I haven't looked up, like, any advanced stuff on it, but I, I, seeing that, I imagine that Schaefer just decided that they were not going to let Ralph Webb beat them. Um, the long run of the game for Vandy was nine, yard, nine yards, uh, but it didn't matter because Shermer was getting almost 11 a pop. So um, if that's what their, their game plan is going to be again next week, uh, I think we're going to give it to them. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Oh, please, don't stop our run. <laughs> yeah, I think that, you know, I hinted at this earlier too. Like, I think that's probably what happened a little bit more than, like, a complete shutdown of the run. Obviously, two yards of carry is not great. That's even worse than something that we uh, put together. I don't feel like Vanderbilt's offensive line is going to be that much worse, if any worse than ours. Um, but at the same time, like if they are, if they are a struggling defense that inherited Schaefer's system without a ton of time, they're going to get beat over the top. And I think that's where you know Vandy went ahead and just let them have it. Um, I think we can do the same, uh, which which should be encouraging for us. I saw that they really didn't get, um, you know, after uh, Shermer much. They got one uh, sack on him. I think Dungy would probably be susceptible to the same, one, maybe two, um, depending on, you know, what type of game he's having, how long he's in it. Um, but, but if Dungy under pressure can really, really burn you, and, and granted, Schaefer knows that better than anybody, um, outside the Syracuse locker room, but um, if they're going to pressure him and if they're not going to get to him, they're going to pay a, a very, very dear price. Yeah, that, that's the thing. Dungey, like, he's generally pretty good. Like, he obviously takes big hits, but I feel like he's pretty good about avoiding, like, huge sats and huge negative plays. Yeah. yeah like, he'll get hit while he's throwing, granted. The big hits he takes are when he's throwing or when he's out in the open field and he's usually gained a bunch of yards already. Like, it's not like he's getting... He doesn't really get rocked. For, I mean, I'm not saying this couldn't happen, and I think uh, he actually mentioned this in the post game. Like, he says it's better to hit from a corner than a defensive end. That, that's true. Um, <laughs> but most of the big lips he's taken are from, like, linebackers and guys once he's down to the second level or, and he's broken contain. I don't remember him taking any, like, giant shots um, in the pocket. Uh, and he's, you know, he has buffed up. He has bulked up. He's, like, he 227 took, now. He took one... In the early second quarter, you remember that ball that fell a little bit short? Yeah. And, like, got altered? Yeah, that one in a butler? Like, that one he got, he got hit right in the chest. Um, but that was really, like, the only shot he took. Um, he, he did deliver, there was one, he, he did, like, a bootleg twice where he really, like, he was flushed. He wasn't completely flushed out of the pocket immediately, but he just basically, because we, the game was already in hand, just kind of improvised and, like, then put himself closer to the closer to the sideline, and I think one time he ended up bootlegging around for around eight yards, and another time he ended up delivering a really nice pass um, in the middle of the field for like an eleven or twelve yard gain. Again, this isn't necessarily going to be what Dungy's able to put together against Middle Tennessee, given um, just the level of competition. But nonetheless, like Dungy is, you know, the only quarterback in the country that's really practiced against his defense. Um, before I think he knows what to expect to an extent, um, and, and while he hasn't seen this this you know defense in practice in you know a year and a half, it doesn't mean that he doesn't that that muscle memory and, and, and just his mind doesn't 
recall, you know, what he would see in these situations. So as much as Schaefer's well-equipped to deal with the skilled players on Syracuse's side of the ball, you know, especially Dungy and Strickland, um, and then guys like Ishmael and Phillips, um, you know, those guys are, are just as well-equipped to deal with uh, the defensive looks that they should be well-acquainted with as well, um, given their time and practice against those schemes. Yeah, and while he knows those guys in terms of their like individual abilities, they're being used in very different ways now than they were under the uh, dynamic offense of Tim Lester and George McDonald. Um, the other, like, I think the main major concern for me in this game is that just as a takeaway from the Vanderbilt game for Middle Tennessee, uh, Vandy's defense should be very good this year, um, and they held Middle Tennessee six, uh, six points, but they still got eaten up a little bit by Ricky James, who is Middle Tennessee's star receiver. Um, and one of those things where I'm, I'm sure they knew that was a guy that couldn't beat them, and he still got you know 10 for 112 and a touchdown. He was the only um, person to do anything. He's the only one who did anything. Uh, and Brent Stockstill, uh, the quarterback from Middle Tennessee, has been a, a better player in the past. He didn't have a great game against Vandy. Um, I think Vandy probably is a, a, a solidly better defense than us. Oh, uh, considerably. If, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I'm not going to totally discount the possibility of our defense having taken a step forward. I don't know that it did based on in Central Connecticut. I, I don't know if they didn't. I just have no idea. Um, but Stockstill, I, I think, has more ability than what he showed against Vandy. And overall, I think Middle Tennessee should be a better offensive club than that. Um, they were pretty well touted in terms of group of five teams uh, entering the year. So uh, we'll see. He he was a, you know, he threw for 4,000 yards in 2015. He threw for 3,200 last year. Um, and he missed time 30 last touch- year. Yeah, I assume. Um, and he had 30 touchdowns in each of those seasons. So, like, he was a pretty big-time group of five quarterback, so it wouldn't shock me if we were in a little more of a shootout uh, next, uh, next weekend. Um, I still think Syracuse should have a solid advantage, uh, and I, I like Syracuse to put up some points. Um, but I, I don't think that because Vanderbilt handled them uh, necessarily means we'll have like a super easy time, although I do feel better about you know the fact that they lost to Vandy, who's – maybe comparable uh, skill-wise and, and ability-wise uh, by 22. Yeah, I mean, looking at some of the numbers here, passing for both teams last week, um, Stockstill only completed 58% of his passes for 166, 5.4 per attempt, uh, one touchdown, one pick. Uh, I mean, he's going to put up better numbers than that. I think that's a given. I know when we were talking to uh, Underdog Dynasty today, um, you know, we, we definitely conceded that they were going to be putting up better numbers, and I think they agreed um, to an extent. Um, I feel like Vandy probably let James just pick up his numbers and then figured everybody else, like, dare them to beat you, and I feel like that's something that Syracuse could and would do um, in this situation. Also of note, um, I know we already talked about some of the, the Middle Tennessee passing defense. Uh, Shermer completed 71.4% of his throws, so 20 for 28. Um for 10.6 yards per attempt, 296 yards total, three touchdowns, zero picks, a rating of 195.59. So, um, again, given the fact that Dungy is better than Shermer, um, I would really like um, the sound of what we're able to do. It does seem like Vandy was throwing a little bit further past the line of scrimmage than, um, I I don't have the yards after catch info, but looks like they would be throwing a little bit further past the line of scrimmage than Syracuse would. I'm sure that, that um, you know, knowing Schaefer's defense, they're going to try to put guys in the boundary um, and try to um, really close out those screens, as we know from experience, uh, in particular the Notre Dame game from a few years ago, um, that 
doesn't necessarily always work with the Schaefer defense, even if that's by design. Um, so we'll see. But I, I, the more I dive into the numbers on this, the more I really like what Dungy's going to be able to do to this defense. Yeah, I mean, Dungy is the type of quarterback, and this team is the type of team that always gave Schaefer's defenses fits. So aside from, you know, Georgia Tech, which was completely different, and that was just like a such a disaster of a game. But like overall, the, the giant up-tempo spreads were the ones that consistently – uh, made it hard on us versus like you know a power running team we could usually hang with. Uh, so um, even ones that were like overmatched, like when we played like a lesser spread team um, with dynamic uh, dual threat quarterbacks, like we we often had issues. So uh, I'm pretty confident about that. I'm excited to see what Dungey can do against them. I'm excited to uh, get a, you know because Middle Tennessee even like even at 0 and 1 here, I, I still think they're probably like a pretty you know, upper echelon conference USA team. And that's a, that's a pretty good test for what Syracuse will, will look like this year. And if we, if we handle middle Tennessee and beat them like 45 to 24 or something, I think that's a pretty good sign. Yeah, I would completely agree. I think that this is, and it's something like, as soon as this game was scheduled, you and I talked about, and everybody else did too. Like this is a, this is an interesting test for Syracuse in terms of like, okay, like pit like bludgeoned us to death on the ground last year because we couldn't stop the run and we were beaten up and, and that game was just, you know, I think an anomaly. But, um, like, this is now a team that plays at the same tempo as us, a similar style to us. They're always going to go three or four wide. Um, they've got one really dynamic receiver who they're going to lean on a ton. Um, they're going to blitz the same way we used to. Like, there, there's a lot to there's a lot to see is this really being, like, a, a litmus test of, like, just how much better is this group um, and especially on the defensive end, see how much better this group can, can stop pace. Cause you know, against pace last year, against USF, against pace, against, uh, Louisville, um, things didn't necessarily go as well. Um, another interesting thing to watch this week will be, um, you know, what can middle Tennessee do on the ground? Like in middle Tennessee, I mean, last week they only ran for what, 49 yards. Um, it seems like they're really missing Octavius Mathers. Um, I think they've lost at least three, if not four offensive linemen from last year. So the run game has really taken a hit. Mathers last year as a senior, uh, he had 1,561 yards, 6.73 average, 17 touchdowns on the ground. Uh, that's impressive. But then this year, um, their leading rusher so far is Maurice Gordon. Yeah, he had seven attempts for 26 yards. Uh, it seems like Stockstill had some attempts, but most of those are probably sacks. I think they had five sacks on the week last week for Vandy, so five of those were runs, I guess. Um in any case, you look at this and you see, like, they don't really have much of an answer uh, to run the ball. And, and, and if you're going to let, like, it's going to be a test for Syracuse, but I think it's also going to be a very bad idea against Tampa 2 to basically sell out um, and just throw the ball 50 times. And I think based on what we saw from pass rush perspective, that, that could end very poorly um, for, for Middle Tennessee as, as, as what looks like, again, a renewed pass rush could really get after stock still and, and, and could punish him. Yeah. I'm also interested to see the continued, uh, like sl- star turn of Chris Slayton, who I think is kind of emerging as like sneakily, like one of the better players in the ACC on the front. Um, so I know which we thought would happen last year. Yeah. Yeah. We, yeah, we had a really good year last year, uh, among the group that was, you know, had riddled with issues. Um, but like, I think he, he grades out really well in the advanced analytics, which I, I didn't really, you know, even think of or, or expect. And then last year he was the, the number, well, tied for the number one defensive, uh, interior lineman, uh, on pro football focus. They do their like team of the week. Dungy was the top quarterback 
Ishmael was a top receiver, and then Slayton was a top uh, interior lineman. Um, and they do like a they have like a kind of a wild rating system, like play by play, and sometimes some weird stuff comes out. But overall, I think they're pretty good. Um, so that's that's you know he 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 seems to be uh, really gaining a lot of respect. And then I know Julian pointed him out as like a guy who was getting like an awesome push up front, and and that's not always the thing that you see like right away if there aren't like a ton of sacks being recorded. But um, it does like having played off the line, like when when someone is uh, just put, making a, a a giant push on the inside of the line, like it messes everything up. You can't like th- that's why interior defensive linemen who can get pressure on the quarterbacks um, themselves are like among the most invaluable players in the entire sport. Uh, so interested to see him, especially against a an offensive line that sounds like is is very much a work in progress uh, and not totally unlike ours. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited about that. And, and between, you know, him, Kate Samuels, two guys who were able to generate a ton of pressure um, on the inside, uh, I think we're going to see more out of, you know, some newcomers like Brandon Barry and Alton Robinson this week um, rushing from the edge. Uh, this could be fun. I think it could be a nice, uh, you know, kind of field test for um, some of these new concepts that we saw a little bit of last week but didn't necessarily see as much as we thought. Um, in terms of, you know, a renewed pass rush and, and, and renewed blitz scheme, things like that. Um, so, Dan, I guess to close us out, uh, where do you see this final score going? Uh, I'm going to keep it, you know, not relatively close, but I, I, I will take Syracuse to cover that spread, which I think is up to like nine and a half now. Yep. I'm going to go with 38-28. All right. Um, I think I had, when I gave my prediction... To underdog dynasty, and I don't think that article's up yet. But anyway, uh, I think I said forty-one thirty-one. Um, yeah, so around the same ballpark. Yeah, I, I feel like forty-one thirty-one's fair. Maybe I up, dive into the numbers a little bit. I'm a little more confident. We go forty-one twenty-eight. Um, I think that one, like, I think like that's mostly because like me, probably like a late touchdown uh, from Middle Tennessee probably closes the gap a little bit. But I, I do think that Syracuse is going to be able to put some distance here. Um, whether it's early or late, is going to dictate you know how long Dungey has to play and how long a lot of other guys have to play. So um, I think Middle Tennessee is a very good team, but I, I do think that, that Syracuse is more talented and is better equipped to win this one. Um, hopefully that bears out. Yep. And as, just as a cap, right, I, I read right before we got on the article you wrote about you know kind of Schaefer's like from a distance legacy at SU, mm-hmm. and, and I do appreciate that. Uh, and hope that his reception at the Dome is fairly positive because, like you said, like obviously him as head coach did not work out. We were very uh, he, uh, on the site and here on the podcast, like we were very uh, pointed about that. Uh, and you know, there there isn't really hiding it. There, what happens on the field happens on the field. Um, I will say he was a, a very good defensive coordinator uh, at SU under Marone, and he was pretty he was one of the most important people in that brief resurgence we had. Um, and also, there aren't a lot of people that like you could definitely say seemed very um, authentically into being at Syracuse and being part of the community. I honestly believe that Scott Schaefer would have stayed at SU for a very long time if given the chance. Um, and obviously, I think we made the, uh, a very, the very correct move to move on from him and hire Dino Babers. But overall, like he, he seemed truly invested in the community. Obviously, uh, Wolfgang goes to Ithaca and uh, it seemed like it, you know, it was kind of a hard breakup for them for that whole side. You get that because it was his first head coaching job, and he had waited a while. But overall, like I think he um, did a lot of very, uh, good things while at SU, mostly as an assistant. And hopefully, uh, you know, the fans give him a a you know fairly warm welcome um, 
I don't know how much of a public thing it'll be because he'll be in the booth, I assume. But, uh, you know, he's definitely an interesting legacy. Uh, kind of like when Paul Pasqualoni came back uh, as UConn head coach a couple years ago, and I think there was some mixed reaction. But I hope people are, are fairly good to him because, uh, you know, for however things worked out, I thought he, he definitely gave it his all, and I never thought that he was, you know, in it for, you know, the paycheck or just, you know, that's the place that gave him the head coaching shop, job and he was going to leave the second he had a chance. And, you know, who knows how things will could have worked out differently if he had done with a different offensive coordinator or whatever. And, and clearly, you know, I think we're all pretty happy where we are now. But uh, Schaefer, you know, I thought he tried hard and he was, you know, we were all very into him as a head coach for, for a while there. And just because it didn't work out doesn't mean that he doesn't deserve, you know, some some lingering respect. 100%. You know what? I think a lot of fans are going to be pretty respectful. I think we were, a lot of people were torn on the way out, obviously, like, between chip on his shoulder and, and just a lot of the, the reactions and a lot of the venom that was tossed around the fan base and between him and the media, it did become a bit of a hostile environment and something that I think Mark Coyle, who was the AD at the time, definitely recognized. Um, at the end of the day, you're right. He, he, he did try to try harder than most. I think he really wanted it to work. I think he really wanted, he wanted to be part of the community. He wanted to be part of Syracuse. And I think he made himself, you know, more part of Syracuse than maybe Doug Marone ever did. Um, and, and, you know, Marone is a former player and alum who, who coached the team for four years. Like, I don't, I, I don't begrudge Schaefer an, a, anymore. I never really did at the time for, for his work before he became a head coach. Even his first year as a head coach, it felt like, you know, other than a couple little PR gaffes here and there, I felt like overall, like, he was someone who, who got people excited, who got people excited about Syracuse football, um, got people excited to, to, to play there, got people excited to talk about them. I mean, didn't always make us friends outside of Syracuse, but uh, that seemed fine. I, I think that, again, like there's a lot of fans who are, who are still, I mean, there's plenty that, that might even wish he was still coach. I don't understand those people, but whatever. Um, those people cheer him. I'm sure plenty of folks that are more like us who, who can compartmentalize what happened at the end and what happened at the beginning uh, will probably you know, respect him a bit. I think that the fact that he's not, you know, the head coach at a rival school, like was the case with UConn and uh, coach P probably helps, uh, you know, make that reaction a bit warmer. Uh, I, I fully expect a little bit of, uh, of conversation around the broadcast too, uh, kind of harping on that, um, a bit, but yeah, I, I think we can be, we can be thankful for, for what, you know, he was able to do as defense coordinator and what he was able to do, at least in the first year of the ACC, helping us get a, a, a respectable showing um, before, you know, things kind of unfortunately headed in the other direction. Yep. And also a shout out to uh, Tim Lester and, and uh, Tim Dowst who almost beat USC. <laughs> <laughs> like, as we always said, we knew Tim Lester would be a great head coach and this never year, had any doubts. This exact year. Um, no, this actually... In a lot of ways, it also bore out what you and I said when he was hired, was what happened. What happens in year one is not going to be. This almost becomes a little bit of a, a mirror image of what happened to Schaefer. What happens in year one when you have a lot of the players from the the previous regime, and then what happens in year two, when when you have almost half the team is now your guys, and, and you know that's when we have to face Western Michigan as, as a program. For Syracuse, let's see if let, let's see how much of the talent and the reasons why Western Michigan made the Cotton Bowl last year um, are, are are still around and still operational um, for Tim Lester and his offense. Which, I mean, he he doesn't run the offense, 
right now, but that offense did more against USC, an immensely talented team, than anything Syracuse did while he was there. Yeah, I didn't get to see the game because it was on Pac-12 Network, which may as well not exist. Um, <laughs> but uh, good for them. Like, Douse, or Lester, honestly, like, for his failings as offensive coordinator here, it does seem like all the media guys, like, rave about him. It seems like he was very easy to work with. He was almost to a fault, like, very open compared to, like, the normal, very buttoned-up uh, football coach. Um, I'm looking at the numbers now. They ran the hell out of the ball. Um, I'm not super surprised that Dows, obviously they ended up doing 49 points, but like a lot of those were the fourth quarter. It wouldn't shock me if he ended up being a very good defensive coordinator because I thought he was pro- pretty consistently like the most impressive assistant on Schaefer's staff. So um, I guess it'd be kind of cool if they ended up being good. Uh, I hope that we beat the hell out of them next year. But, you know, I was rooting for him to beat USC because that would have been hilarious. <laughs> I was in a, I was in a bar full of mostly Nebraska fans actually in LA, uh, but there were some USC fans uh, that was getting quite a bit of attention uh, on the TV during that game. Uh, obviously, things kind of went to hell from there for uh, for Western, but for for a fleeting few moments, it did seem like uh, Western was going to be able to pull it off. Yeah, that would have been uh, like a lot of crazy stuff happened this weekend, and that would have been the craziest thing. <laughs> but alas the talented team ended up uh, doing the thing. So, and Ronald Jones just is, is a monster. <laughs> agreed, agreed. Um, all right. You know what, Dan? It's been, a, it's been a fun episode, as always. Glad we got to talk actual football results and an actual football game in the same episode. Yes, very glad to have done it. And uh, we get a, an even more interesting and uh, elucidating one coming up. Agreed, agreed. Uh, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to Troy Noon's An Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe on iTunes, on Blog Talk, on whatever ever other service you might uh, listen to us on, and uh, go orange. Go orange. Up to 70% off. That's right, at Court Furniture Clearance Center. Get up to 70% off new retail prices and choose from a wide variety of previously leased furniture and decor for your home or office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. All items are court certified, guaranteed, and in stock, ready for delivery or to take home today. Make the smart choice and visit one of our five locations in the DMV or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com. Mention Radio 20 and get 20% off. With 25% off all new and up to 70% off previously leased furnishings, do you really need a better reason to party? We don't think so. Come visit our new Court Furniture Clearance Center with more than 9,000 square feet of new and previously leased furniture and decor for your home and office. Sofas from $199.99, bedroom sets from $399.99, dining sets from $299.99, and more. Free food, prizes, and fun all weekend long at our Chantilly Court Furniture Clearance Center at 13946 Lee Jackson Memorial Highway or go online at courtclearancefurniture.com.